paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance. Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own, that there, there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? Who? Some car hop or dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Agatha Luz. Hi. Thanks for having me in again. I'm very excited for this one. Also back in the booth is Mr. Philip Marinello. 
Don't blame me. I'm not an executive, just a writer. We conclude November 2022 with a look at Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Released in 1950, the film tells the story of Joe Gillis, a screenwriter who meets a faded star of yesteryear, Norma Desmond. Gillis becomes a kept man while helping to fuel Norma Desmond's delusion that she's returning to the silver screen in a lavish production of Salome. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard before... Well, you're in for a big treat because it's kind of one of the best movies ever made. So, Agatha, when was the first time you saw Sunset Boulevard and what did you think? Embarrassingly, it was two or three years ago and a major gap in my film education. My husband and I went through a spate of uh, watching classic films. So we saw Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve, which is maybe the best double feature ever. I loved it. I just completely fell in love with this and uh, learned that exploitation is a thing. So that was exciting. I'm not sure if this is the first exploitation, but it definitely was a milestone. It's credited as the first one. And Philip, how about yourself? I was looking it up sometime between the years of 2001 and 2003. I don't know if uh, you remember the old video game series, Max Payne, that had the unfortunate Mark Wahlberg movie. So those... Video games came out. The first one came out in 2001. The second one came out in 2003. So somewhere in there, noir was a heavy, heavy influence on it. And I remember, I think it was Game Informer. I read an article about a bunch of the classic noirs that influenced different aspects of the game. So that was my my film education. And I watched all of the classics then. And it's been something I've loved ever since. So super excited to be part of a November here. I'm not sure when I first saw this. I want to say I saw it on a VHS tape, probably mid to late 90s, and just fell in love with it. I love movies about making movies, and this one is so wonderfully depressing and just really hits that year of 1950 so well. And talking about the earlier days, the days of silence, it's pretty funny because Norma Desmond the way that she talks, she was much more of a silent star, and it feels like she got ousted by sound, even though she has a perfectly normal, lovely voice, even though it, it has a great affectation, which is terrific. Uh, that's affectation, not expectation, even though we're going to talk about great expectations as we go along here. But this whole thing of her being choked by words, I love that, because there were so many stars that were just kind of disenfranchised by the sound era and she definitely plays into that even though gloria swanson who is not the same person as norma desmond and we should definitely make sure we say that right up front she absolutely had, she had a pretty good career when it came to sound movies though she did go through a pretty fallow period for a couple decades so this really was a great return and i'm saying return i'm not saying comeback return for her even though she had a pretty good career at the time i think she was working on either a TV show or a radio show at the same time. So right before she came out to Hollywood to uh, do Sunset Boulevard. So yeah, this film just captivated me and has stayed with me ever since. And it's one of those that I just go back and rewatch probably once every five, 10 years because it's such a wonderful picture. I mean, you mentioned in your intro, you called it one of the best movies ever made. And people throw that around a lot. And it had been probably about 10 years since the last time I saw it. Like I have it logged on Letterboxd as a five-star movie, but watching it again, watching I watched it one time entirety and then looked at other scenes here and there and checked out some of the commentaries. It's incredible. Every scene, the entire movie. I mean, 
it it lost too many Oscars to All About Eve, which I I haven't seen yet. I, I will add that to the list. But I was like, man, how did it lose so many of these Oscars? But it's it's a phenomenal film. I was like, I was watching. I was like, is this one of the actual best movies ever made? Definitely, and it's, it's up there. It definitely is. I mean, every little aspect of it, the cinematography, the use of light when it matters to the characters. There's so much symbolism, but it isn't heavy handed. There's a lot going on with relationships and how they're not what they appear to be. I and probably will go on for hours. I will end. This could be like a uh, one of those Katrina Longworth type things where we just go through like each act of the film and that becomes an entire episode unto itself. I mean, oh, I influences like I mean, I know it's a pop culture thing, but I mean, you could just see so many influences like I this year I've been kind of I say re getting into I've actually been like clicking with David Lynch. And I know that this is one of his like er texts and just kind of looking at it going, wow, like I see I see it all. Yes, definitely. Well, have you seen season three of Twin Peaks? Yes, which many things. I mean, actually, several parts of Twin Peaks. I mean, David Lynch himself as uh, Gordon Cole. But I mean, yeah, no, it's uh, that's the part that wakes up uh, Dale Cooper, right? He wakes up watching uh, uh, Sunset Boulevard. When that came on in the show, I was just like, yes, I know exactly what's about to happen. And I was so happy. <laughs> I was just super giddy. You were talking about how it lost so many Oscars to All About Eve. And I can kind of see why, because this was a very uncomfortable mm. picture for people. It's a mean movie. It's very mean. And it is really just holding up this mirror to Hollywood saying, look how you threw away all of these people that were so valuable to everything that you built. I mean, she has that line about how there wouldn't be a Paramount if it wasn't for me. I'm the one that built this studio. But that's actually true of the actress. She she was one of the people responsible for Paramount just becoming what it was. I didn't realize until I was watching Jeffrey Swartz's documentary Boulevard, which we'll talk about later, just how big of an actress Gloria Swanson was, that she was the person the the ultimate superstar for quite a few years you know we talk about like valentino or chaplin and she was up there she was just as if not more popular than some of these actors that are held in this high esteem but for whatever reason she wasn't held in that high esteem as of 1950 so it was very much like gloria swanson who's that very much like norman desmond i thought you were dead and it was so meta, too. I also wonder, obviously, you could say it's very far ahead of his time. You're just talking about Chaplin. That Chaplin scene was like mesmerizing this time. How she did a really great Chaplin, but when she kind of snaps and loses it in the middle of the Chaplin act and the hat comes off and her hair is all wild, but she still has the mustache and is like manic. It was just so affecting. And this time I knew who Buster Keaton was. I was like, man, this movie is so late, so meta. And that scene was, it could have been funny. It could have been played for laughs, but it was terrifying. She was just, she turned into a full monster. Gloria Swanson's performance in this movie. And I know we're just kind of jumping all over the place with this, but it has to be done. Her performance is just so mesmerizing just to see how she slips in and out of madness, how there are some times where she is fully lucid and other times where she is just starting to go off her rocker and other times where she's fully out there. 
that moment when Gillis is reading her screenplay and she's got that great cigarette holder in one on hand finger. and the, I claw, want one of those. the claw on the other hand. Yes, oh my up God. Here. Yes. It's like this and this, and it's just emphasizing visually the fact that she is the witch in this fairy tale and she's all claw her house is basically the candy house from Hansel and Gretel. He's drawn to it the same way. And once he's in, he's trapped. And there's a long series of, of further traps. Just a quick list. There's the script, which she's hanging over him. The fact that the script can't leave. So he has to be there inviting him to live when he, when she knows his situation is really dodgy. Then there's paying for the apartment and having his things moved in, going to the husband room and uh, the new clothes. He, she's changing his behavior and his appearance. The suicide attempt was definitely a trap to get him to come in and feel guilty for his behavior. And then sort of worked, but sort of didn't work. Final trap of calling Betty. That one backfired, but beyond that, it was just a series of traps. And within this, she is the monster. She's all claws and teeth. I've read an article about how she's like Dracula. And I don't know if I necessarily agree 100%, but it does very much feel like Jonathan Harker coming to that house. I'd forgotten to mention with that fairy tale, it's not that she eats the children or she eats him, but she eats who he is. She just consumes it and is just replacing all of that with herself, which is kind of vampiric. Well, and also his car and how his car is what brings him there. His car is that symbol of freedom. And when his car gets taken away, that he is just completely demolished. He has no way now of moving around. It's like, oh, well, you don't need that car. I'll drive you. It's all control. This idea that doors, like crossing into the door, it's kind of a uh, a trespass. So that's part of going into a new phase, their transition spaces. He also does the same thing going into the Paramount lot. He goes in the pretty gate. But going back to the house, the doors don't have locks. So within this great big house, there's really nowhere to hide. He had freedom when he was living above the garage. And when she gets him moved in, that's the last vestiges of privacy that he has. And that's the last bit of control that he has. I see her as vampiric. I see her as a witch. I see her as a spider at the center of a web and just bringing him closer and closer until she can sink her fangs into him. I'm just not even 100% sure if she realizes she's doing that. This year, uh, one of my horror uh, checklists for myself in October was the Hammer Frankenstein movie. So I have Frankenstein on the brain a lot. It really gave off some serious Frankenstein vibes for me too. Like one, switching gears to the old universe, her house was very much reminiscent of one of those old horror mansions. And with her and her relationship with Max, She's kind of a monster that's a creation of Max. Like she she has responsibility for the things she does. Some of it she's being purposefully manipulative. Some of it I'm sure she's just kind of lashing out. But I mean, watching it this time, I was just struck by how much Max is like, man, at any time he could have pulled the ripcord on this. I mean, you never know how much reality she would accept, but this all kind of falls at his feet, really. 
I totally agree. Max is the reason why she has that massive fall because if he had been honest and she only got, you know, maybe one or two fan letters over time, it's like the frog boiling in water. She would have gotten used to the fact that she's falling off in popularity. But for that to come all at once on top of her latest lover leaving her instead of her leaving him, and that's her whole break. She just broke. And her last film, Walking Down the Stairs, is filmed by the first guy who filmed her. So he has bookended her career. And it's true. He he does. He's like the devil in this relationship, if we want to talk about her deal with the devil. You must understand, I discovered her when she was 16. I made her a star. And I cannot let her be destroyed. Very much a Dr. Frankenstein. This is his monster. It's his creation. And it is out of his control. He's just trying to manage it. And I mean, I just think of the the Peter Cushing things like he makes it. He goes, oh, awesome. I made this thing. But then it's just kind of out of his hands. And he's just trying to kind of just running around the countryside, killing people and tearing things apart to jump way ahead to that ending. I mean, it's the best happy ending ever. I mean, Joe gets the pool. He gets to direct again. And Norma gets to be back on film. So it's like the perfect happy ending for that all three of our main it's characters. It's funny because I actually say that none of them had a happy ending at all. None of them got what they ultimately wanted. Which is, by definition, noir. Part of me was going, is this really noir? But by the end, is like, no, everybody made bad decisions and everybody got the consequences. It follows a lot of noir conventions because there are a few times where I'm just like, to your point, yeah, is this noir? I don't know. But that we have the flashback narrative structure, that we've got the voiceover. How about that opening shot? In 1950, like, had anybody seen anything like that before? Oh, it was so good. That we start in the gutter. They did it in a mirror. I heard that. They did it in a mirror. I wasn't exactly sure how it it was done even. They had him in a pool, which was, I think they said, 40 degrees. It was super cold to keep the water very clear. And the cameraman figured out an angle. I think he said it was exactly 49 degrees or something where he could point the camera down at this mirror on the bottom of the pool. And then that gave the reflection. And then they just hung white muslin behind the cops on the side of the pool to make it look like early morning dawn. But I mean, that was a heck of a special effects shot. Oh, yeah. Yes. And how great is it to have a dead person narrating your film? This must have been so transgressive at the time. If an audience has never seen that, they think he's going to get out of this just fine. That must have been a horrible shock. It's not really clear that it's holding there. And the way that he keeps saying, he did this, he did that. And then he switches in the voiceover to I as soon as we go back six months and start the story proper, as it were. The opening shot with Sunset Boulevard on the curb we're literally pointing into a gutter right yes, in the gutter exactly with the dripping paint of the title yes, basically yeah. yeah and going back we see the gutter version but then we see the street sign which is so much higher and it's actually the beginning of the good part of town yeah which goes all the way to silver lake apparently um i found that out today <laughs> so under the silver lake and sunset boulevard are really connected <laughs> And it's kind of funny because we were talking on the Under the Silver Lake episode about when 
Andrew Garfield loses his car and how he's forced to walk every place. And it's just like, yes, that car, the symbol of freedom, you know, nobody walks in LA kind of thing. And did you guys do that recently? Yes. Yeah. We just, uh, I need, actually, is that, I need to check that one out. I it'll be out in a couple weeks, but yeah, you definitely need to see that movie. It's pretty fantastic. First time I saw it, I hated it, but. Me too. I love getting turned around on something. My husband spent a lot of time with research, and I'm always down for some research. I can find good things in movies. I love that movie now. Nice. So I mean, it, it's definitely worth a second watch. I just love the structure. I love the voiceover. And my God, the dialogue just ripples with excitement. And just these lines that he's got, these little quips that he does. You know, I talked to a couple of yes men. To me, they said no. It's right up there with like Philip Marlowe from Murder My Sweet talking about how to, his wallet was trying to find its way under a duck. You know, just like what the hell? But just very Chandler-esque to me. So um Algonquin. At the same time, just that really quick, snappy Dorothy Parker stuff. The the repartee between he and Gloria Swanson when she will throw out some lines and then he's always got the little zinger. He's always got the little knife to just wedge between her ribs after every single time she has one of those big lines, you know. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. Look at them in the front offices. The masterminds. They took the idols and smashed them. The Fairbankses, the Gilberts, the Valentinos. And who have we got now? Some nobody. Don't blame me. I, I'm not an executive, just a writer. You are writing words. Words, small words. Well, you've made a rope of words and strangled this business. <laughs> but there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue. You wake up the monkey. Just when she goes off on things like that, when she gives her thing about how she still is big, it's the pictures that got small. And I think he says something like, well, yeah, that's the problem. Because, yeah, I knew there was something wrong with him. The pictures did get small. That was around the time TV That's became. That's when TV a, was right. kicking off. She's using TV as a reason why she's not acting anymore on top of the sound. But really, it's because she refuses to change. She refuses to just roll with any life changes. She's a total diva. I love when she's meeting with DeMille and she's just basically pleading a little bit and just talking about how this is going to be so great and I don't care about the budget and this is going to be wonderful. And then her little thing of, I just want to work again. You don't know what it means to know that you want me. Nothing would please me more, Norma, if, if it were possible. And remember, darling, I don't work before 10 in the morning and never after 4.30 in the afternoon. That was heartbreaking, but hilarious. You talked about Max, and my God, Eric von Stroheim is so great in this. And this, my exposure to Sunset Boulevard initially was through the Carol Burnett show, and I had no idea what I was watching. So when I actually got to see the movie the first time, I was floored, just wondering what the hell was I seeing. You have a table for Miss Nora Desmond. Nora Desmond coming here? <laughs> We don't want her to be mobbed by thousands of her worshipping fans. Right, I understand, yes. We must keep it quiet at the great Nora Desmond. 
This star who single-handedly made Hollywood what it was is coming out of retirement to eat. I, I definitely remember that skit. I watched a lot of reruns and Carol Burnett tapes with my family. I hadn't seen that. But when you sent that to me er- earlier this week, I just kind of got a little nostalgic. I never watched it live, but it was always like, man, like sketch comedy on TV can be good. <laughs> the way that Harvey Corman and Chris. Tim Conway. Not to take anything away from Carol Burnett, but those are two of the funniest men who have ever been on television. Well, and Corman could not keep a straight face oh, because, gosh. I mean, he would just start to corpse so often whenever Conway was doing his thing. You could tell that he was having the best time working with Tim Conway. Oh, yeah. And he was trying to make him, too. It's, you could see that they were having so much fun. Carol Burnett with that the eye makeup and just the overextended. And, and the, the cigarette that was hanging. And apparently she did that six times on the show. And the first time she did it, Swanson even either saw it or heard about it and wrote her a note and was saying, this is hilarious. And then she got invited onto the Carol Burnett show and was actually part of the fun for one episode. That's amazing. I, I need to look that up. I need to find that. I'm really that. glad she appreciated it. It could have gone horribly wrong. Well, she has to kind of know that it's such a camp performance. I mean, there's a good reason why drag queens just flock to Sunset Boulevard. It's heightened sexuality. It's all very high feminine. Everything is really overblown. And of course, it's the kind of acting that was, you know, silent acting. It was very big. But now she's putting word to it as well. And her words are just as melodramatic as her actions. Well, you mentioned the the scene at the end. And and I think Watching it again through 2022 eyes, just the theme of attention, it just seemed so relevant for right now today. She didn't need the money. She didn't need the actual, like, there are plenty of people that, like, when she showed up, all those older folks recognized her and had actual, like, esteem for her. But it was literally about, like, the attention of a camera back in 1950, like, 70 years ago. They're like, man, Uh, the attention that people want from being around cameras can be a dangerous thing. And I was like, wow, (laughs) this was also very ahead of its time. I've actually heard of some performers who say they don't even feel alive unless they're performing. I'm sure there's a lot going on there psychologically. It's not super healthy, but I can understand from Norma's vantage point. She had been used to all of this attention and used to being adored. And now she isn't. And that's hard. Absolutely. Because I mean, I thought it was so interesting because it's like, she's not lacking for anything other than genuine connection and affection. And again, I kind of see Max as the villain. He's standing all the, the fake attention and the fake fan letters and the playing go between trying to make it sound like Paramount is interested in her when they are just trying to rent her car for an old movie. He is the one who is preventing her from actually doing things like she's not going to go hungry. She's buying the most expensive stuff. Like they had that line like, oh, she's got like real money back in the day when you made like 20 grand a week and didn't have to pay taxes or something like that. She's going to be fine financially, but having enough money to buy food and have clothes is not all that the human soul needs. And he's kind of keeping her from that. And her environment is actually not reflecting her actual wealth. I think her her house is more 
a mirror to what her mind is like and what her life is like, where it, it was in fashion back then. And she's just allowed it to be dilapidated because she's not changing with the times again. And there are people who aren't willing to change so much. They just stop leaving the house. They stop caring about the real world, which she seems to because she is obsessed with her own movies. She's obsessed with the youthful image. Uh, so why leave the house? She can't have those things anymore. Yeah, the shell of the house is completely dilapidated, to your point. The empty pool with the rats inside of it. But then you get to the interior, and it's just this Baroque, Gothic nightmare with all of those photos of Norma looking at herself, which is just wild. When she's on the couch and she just has all of those photos behind her, that bed that she's in that has all the cherubs and just the ornate you know, wood coming off of it. I mean, you can get lost in this movie just looking at the backgrounds because they just go on and on forever. And everything is there for a reason. The production design on this movie is just incredible. Well, yeah, I learned uh, going through that the last uh, week or two looking at that. The person who they hired to do the set dressing was actually somebody who designed old Hollywood stars homes. Authenticity. I can't remember if it was just talking in general or if it was talking specifically about this film, about how a lot of the production designers, whenever they were out, they would go to antique stores and just buy so many old things and just kind of ship them back to the studio to always have a whole supply of old materials or ornate materials that they could use in the films. And it looks like all the stuff that Charles Foster Kane put in storage, if you just left it out, that would be this. Because even when he's coming up, I'm thinking of, of San Simeon, I'm thinking of Xanadu, and I'm thinking of that palace that Charles Foster Kane has built for himself. You know, rather than it being his wife in there with her jigsaw puzzles, it's all of that stuff everywhere. Just you can't turn around without seeing or being looked at by Norma Desmond or all of her stuff from her past. And I imagine at a certain point that has to be like a vicious cycle, right? Like the only reason the protagonist gets stuck in there is because he's a screenwriter in need. Like you have Max who's upholding her delusion. But if like, if any normal real person came by, they'd be like, what's going on here? <laughs> like that's not a, an environment that tends towards like openness and people coming in. It isn't, but Joe seems to be so desperate to take shortcuts that seeing, oh, she has money, oh, she has a job for me, it's very seductive for him, and he gets drawn right in. Well, and he thinks he's smarter than she is. When he says, I was feeling a little sick at my stomach, what with that sweet champagne and that tripe I'd been reading, that silly hodgepodge of melodramatic plots. However, by then... I'd started concocting a little plot of my own. Yeah, you might think you know better, but she's always two or three steps ahead of you. Because even by the time you get up to the room above the garage, Max has made up that room. She knew that you were going to be staying there. The next morning, all of your things are there. All of this stuff has been going on in the background, and you're not even aware of it, Joe. I actually argue that when Max let Joe in for the first time, Max is like, this is the next one. She's going to get him. He's the next monkey. <laughs> exactly. The oh, boy. That was something. The new husband for the husband room. 
I wish I had a husband room now because that's just amazing. <laughs> it's like the man cave, but it's a, you know, a husband room. Just no locks. Right. <laughs> but yeah, the, the idea that she had a monkey as a companion, was it a chimp? Yeah, it was a chimp. So yeah, a chimp yeah. as uh, a companion. It's such an exotic pet, rich, eccentric person thing. I'm thinking also Michael Jackson, where you just get to a state where you're like, oh, well, I can have a monkey, right? I can have a tiger. And it, it's really a detachment from reality. And I heard later on Billy Wilder, I, I don't know how true it is or if he was just trying to get a rise out of people. Later on in his career, he used to insinuate or even explicitly say that like Norma and the monkey were engaged <laughs> together. And it's like, woof. It would definitely heighten her perversity. <laughs> and he's coming in on the tail end of that literally like, okay, and on to the next one. It, exactly. One out, one in. Just seeing how perfectly all the dominoes are set up, Joe kind of outs himself at the beginning, which I also had totally forgotten how early uh, Betty Schaefer is introduced in the movie. Um, he's in the office there, and she basically kind of calls him out on his BS. It's like, this is just kind of bad writing, and I only say that because I've read other stuff of yours that's really good. And he goes, yeah, that was yesterday. Like, this year I need to eat or whatever. And he's just basically saying... I'm not really trying. I'm just looking for an easy way. And he sees Norma as a mark and, and man, he's kind of setting himself up there. He's so wrong. <laughs> and he's so disillusioned with Hollywood at this point, that amazing line where he talks about writing a script about Okies in the dust bowl, but you, you wouldn't recognize it because when the picture came out, it was all set on a U boat. Yeah. You, you've seen some shit, Joe. I can kind of understand where you're coming from. Going back to all of the photos in her house and her video, she's kind of uh, the mirror twin of Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray could not look at his picture. He stayed young. The picture got old. For her, she's compelled to watch these images that never grow old while she is just cursed to grow old every day. So it's, it's really a reverse situation, just as painful a situation. Back in October, we talked about both The Hunger and Let the Right One In, which were both movies about vampires replacing their familiars or their companions. And this movie is basically that as well. You know, to the point from earlier, the monkey is on the outs and here comes Joe Gillis, walks right into that companion role, does everything that she needs him to do, thinks that he's got one up on her. And like I said, she's always a few steps ahead. Really, to your point from earlier, Agatha, it really feels like she is systematically destroying him and making him more reliant on her. I love that line when he meets up with Betty and Artie at Schwab's and she's, Betty says, where have you been keeping yourself? And he's like, I haven't been keeping myself at all, really, because he's the kept man. And I love that. And I, I think a few months ago on this, podcast, I was asking aloud because I had forgotten. I couldn't remember if Norma and Joe have sex. And it's not ever explicitly stated, stated that they have sex. But then when I'm listening to the audio commentary, I'm listening to some of the books on uh, Sunset Boulevard, I'm just like, well, of course, of course, he's a gigolo. Of course, he is the there. scene with him coming out of the pool, kind of doing the old Hollywood like woman coming out of the pool move. And she puts the towel around him like that was very for 1950s. I feel like that was 
That was them saying that. Very heightened sexuality without being too overt because censors. If the roles had been reversed, I think we would see Joe as an abused spouse or an abused partner. And it's true. He is. As much as we think he's a jerk and he's really awful and he is, he's really trapped in this horrifically abusive relationship. I don't really think he's awful. I don't know if it's that it's his story, that it's him telling us this story, that we get all of this almost through his point of view, even though a lot of times it feels like this camera is removed from his POV. I mean, we actually don't get too many POV shots at all in the movie, nor do we get a lot of close-ups in this film. But for some reason, I do feel empathy for Joe throughout so much of this, even though he is acting very reprehensibly, even though he he does that thing at the end, though, where he has Betty come over and he lays out everything that's going on, and he is super abusive at that point. And just the whole, like, oh, you want me to pack my things? You want me to pack? And he just lists off all of this stuff that Norma has given him. And he's just basically pushing her away, pushing her back into the arms of Artie, because Artie is a sane and good person. And Joe feels by this point, he is damaged goods. He cannot have a normal relationship with a normal woman at this point. That entire scene with him being so harsh, so like very abusive, it was self-loathing. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And he's not going back to Betty. He wants to go back to Dayton. He doesn't care about going back well, to yeah, Betty. Well, yeah, because he, he kind of loves Betty, but he feels like, like you said, self-loathing, like that he can't have her, that he's not good enough. He basically brings her there and says, I'm a whore. And like, this is my mistress. This is This is what the game is. This is what's happening. And she's like, I don't care. Like, come now, come. Like, and he probably even feels that much worse, which is why he blows up at Norma and kind of seals his own fate. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching it going, man, like, if you know you're going to leave guy, like, wait till she's asleep. Send her a letter. <laughs> she cut her wrist like the previous week. She's like, I have a gun. And he's provoking her. I'm like, okay, guy. Like the way she's framed on the bed with the gun right next to her. I'm just like, oh, wow. What a shot. I mean, you get so sucked in because like we've, we've mentioned a few times, the writing and the acting is just so it is such a perfectly constructed film that when the outside uh, shot comes and they turn on the light of the pool, you're like, oh, yeah. This is where this is all going. Like, I almost got goosebumps. I was like, man, this is such a perfect movie. You can feel those act breaks so much when he looks out and sees the monkey burial, the monkey funeral. Oh my gosh, the monkey funeral. <laughs> and like, this movie's so funny too. He just has that throw, throwaway line. Oh, he must have been a very important chimp. And I was like, I laughed really hard when, when he said that. And then he goes to sleep and it's literally a fade out, fade into the next morning with Takata and Few going on and the soundtrack and him talking about this dance, uh, sorry, this dream that he had where it's somebody throwing pennies at a chimp. I'm like, you're the new chimp. Do you not realize this, Joe? You are the new chimp and they're throwing pennies at you. Literally, she's throwing pennies at him. The only actual cash he keeps is are the pennies that she's giving him from her poker games. I think it was poker. Uh, gin, I think I might have. Yeah, with uh, Buster Keaton. The, the wax works. Oh, man. 
the only other money she gives him is when she's trying to get him to buy cigarettes. She can't stand his cigarettes. By this point, she's dressed him in all of the clothes that she wants him to be in. And my God, do I love that moment in the uh, clothes shop when the, the seller's like, Well, as long as the lady's paying for it, why not take the vacuum in? It was kind of slut shaming. <laughs> also, another uh, Twin Peaks shout out there, too. I was like, oh, man, like this is all in the DNA, the Vicuna coat from season two. I was like, man, oh, man, this is this is it. The last thing that he hasn't changed yet is his cigarettes and she won't smoke his. She sends him in for cigarettes. She hands him some money and there's this great saxophone that comes up on the yes. soundtrack, which just kind of emphasizes like, Ooh, la la kind of thing. I mean, Waxman's score for this is fantastic. And Philip, you mentioned Frankenstein before and that Waxman reuses some of the motifs from his score from Bride of Frankenstein in this movie. Perfect. So good. I love that he does that. Now, that was quite a scene when she hands him the money and it does kind of have that like sultry, sleazy music, like just that sting for a second. And you just go, man, like, how did this not win all the Oscars in the world? But like you said, it was so biting. Like, it was so meta. It was so biting. They weren't ready for it. I was also just kind of floored just seeing all the different layers of it Uh, early in the film when she has her screening room and she's playing all of her old silent films. Like, that was actually Gloria Swanson as a young person in a film actually directed by Eric von Stroheim, who plays Max. And it's just like, man, oh man, like this is, I didn't realize until recently he was, I knew a number of the things, but I didn't realize her Butler Max was actually a silent film director who had actually directed uh, Gloria Swanson a number of times. And I was just like, man, like, is this my new favorite movie? Am I going to watch this a hundred times this year and just kind of get obsessed with it? If I remember correctly, it wasn't a released film either. So it's sort of released in a different film. Yeah, it was released, I think, only in Europe. And it was uh, Queen Kelly was the name of the film. And yeah, it was Von Stroheim directing uh, Swanson acting in there. I almost called her Norma Desmond. She was looking extremely young in that one. Yeah, it was a silent film. And she was not happy with the way that was going. So she went to her boyfriend, Joseph Kennedy, who I think is the Joseph Kennedy, had him come out and basically pulled the plug on the whole thing. And it really ruined they, – they recut the ending. They kind of cobbled together an ending, and it was released in Europe only, was not released in the U.S. for, for a long, long time. I think there's a restoration of it out there now. Uh, still not – the full scope. I think it was originally supposed to be four hours. And it basically put von Stroheim, took him right off the map. He had had nothing but troubles when it came to his work with the studio. So Philip, you probably might be familiar with the film greed. That was a von Stroheim film. That was the one that was cut from like, which they're, they're talking might be joining the criterion collection soon. We'll see. Will that be the eight hour version? Probably not. I always like it when they have three versions, but now I'm like, I got a podcast and a job and a couple of kids. Like, what am I going to watch all these versions? I was like, give me the best one or maybe two. The Sam Staggs book, Close Up on Sunset Boulevard, he does a great job of talking about so many of the players from the film. And his section on Von Stroheim is fascinating to the point where I'm just like, my God, why haven't I seen more Von Stroheim films? I've mostly seen him in front of the camera rather than behind the camera. Yeah, I look, they're, they're challenging to find. 
and I'm, I'm sure each year that goes by where they don't get restored, it is that much uh, unlikely that they will. But I mean, technology is pretty impressive. We'll see. Um, we've mentioned a lot of figures like Dracula and Frankenstein and things like that. I also, on this viewing, the the Salome stuff stuck out to me too. And I, I'm familiar with the biblical story. I knew that there was a play. I looked it up and in the play, um, Wild kind of um, expanded and added a little bit. And in the play, she kills uh, John. She asks for John the Baptist's head because he doesn't return her affections. And the Salome play ends with a powerful woman using her charms to end the life of a man who would not return her affections. And I was like, all right, there you go. <laughs> it's definitely the biblical Salome. And it just shows how out of touch she is because she wants to play this role that is truly made for a younger woman. And she's just did that this is a good role for her. Well, in the movie that DeMille is shooting is Samson and Delilah. So another biblical story and another story of a woman betraying a man and taking away all of his power. And that line, too, where he talks about, like, there's no shame in being 50 unless you're trying to be 25. I got so mad. I, and I mean, like, I want to be careful here. I'd love to hear what <laughs> no, Agatha's thoughts are on it. <laughs> I was just looking. I Hollywood has so many problems. Um, and I'm sure they don't get roles like they used to, but I'm like, I feel like there has been some progress because I just Googled actresses over 50 and there are plenty who are, are working and are still societally viewed as these are attractive, empowered women. They're not like, because back at a certain point, like once you cross a certain age, you were just not seen from again. And I'm like, well, hopefully there's some progress. It's a a, a big topic, but it there is some progress. I almost put that down to how far along the beauty industry has gone so that everybody looks younger than they it's like actually. Salma Hayek's 56. Yes, but right. she's, she's 56 with a lot of money and not saying she necessarily had work, but she has access to products and treatments that nobody else does. But going back to the quote, I got mad because who cares if a 50-year-old wants to dress like a 25-year-old? Who cares if a 25-year-old wants to dress like a 50-year-old? No one wants to be told you're too old for something. There are very few things people are too old for. Like, for instance, I'm too old for elementary school. That's just a fact. But I'm never too old for a mohawk. I love that moment when she's on set with DeMille and the lighting guy Hargoth or whatever his name is, when he turns that spotlight on her and all of the people come back to her and just almost brought me to tears. Oh my God. And then when the light goes off, it does bring her to tears and it just feels like it's so fleeting, you know, just, and it's the mill coming in and go turn that light off. He sees it as an irritant. It's like, what's, what is she doing? Taking the folks away. Like we're working here. Speaking of him, he pretty much directed her very early in life. And um, she's gone again, ageism. He's still working. And he even says like, I'm old enough to be her father. He's a generation older than her gainfully employed at the top of his game. And she's on the outs because she's a woman. Yeah. I'm sure some of that is sexism, but also some of that is her inflexibility. I think when talkies came, she was like, no, this is awful. Goodbye. And that inability to go with it 
is really her downfall. She kind of has done all of this to herself. Yeah, it's like I think of Joan Crawford from Mommy Dearest, which again, super meta because that's obviously a retelling of the Joan Crawford story with another actress playing Joan Crawford. But just that when Hollywood kind of turned its back on her, she had so many other things to do. She had her charity work, she had the whole Pepsi industry, all that stuff. But I think she was still just longing to get in front of that spotlight again. I would love to see an actress who is just absolutely fine as far as turning her back on Hollywood and just that's it, you know, move on to other things, which I think Swanson did quite a bit. You know, the, the actual actress did not have the problems that Norma Desmond had as far as like, okay, yeah, I can do this. I can do that. Yeah. She did TV. She did all sorts of stuff. She did. She used her money for things. And I mean, I saw, I watched a couple of interviews with her later on in life. She was funny, like as an older woman, whenever she went on talks and like, still like a gorgeous lady, like in her sixties and seventies. Like I didn't, th- and that was a weird thing too. Cause his monologue was so negative. And I was like, she's not a bad looking lady. And she is, she's a little crazy because of her circumstances and because of Max and her, I guess like attention addiction, like her need to have the cameras on her and have the masses love her. But I mean, it's such a tragedy. Yeah, when she's doing the Max in a bathing beauty bit and is all in the, the old time bathing suit, I'm just like, man, you're looking damn good, Norma. Yeah. She you know? did, but that scene gave me passive embarrassment because she's performing and having a great time and he's like, just stop. But yeah, she did look beautiful in all of those. And when you see that montage of all the shit that she goes through when she's getting ready to come back in front of the cameras and just how she's not eating and all of the beauty regimens and all the the little doodads and gizmos that they're using on her in order to try to make her look young. That was around the the height of the time that um, industries, actually production companies, were feeding their actors uppers and downers and pretty much managing their entire lives, including how much they ate, what they wore. So we're watching her put herself back into that machine. I read that a Billy Wilder had, and I don't know if it was a full-on split, but one of his longtime writing partners, and he had a big disagreement over just depicting that. Like Again, 1950s, people hadn't seen that before, and he's like, like I know what we're going for with this, but like, come on, like, this is a little far. Like we don't need to be showing all of this to the public. And he's like, no, like (laughs) full speed ahead. It was a beautiful choice. It really is because it is showing you just how much these actors go through to feel as if they can be seen or to be seen by audiences in a good light. And I'm sure male and female, I'd be very interested to see this story done with, a male character, not necessarily this story itself, but an adaptation of it. I found it very ironic. You talked about uh, the breakup that Wilder was having with Brackett at the time and just how much emphasis is put onto Joe working with Betty and how much better they are together when it comes to them having these story conferences or just him even popping his head in at one point and coming up with this whole idea of, the two characters being teachers, they live in the same room because it's cheaper. They even sleep in the same bed. 
I really enjoyed that. And I especially like that. Then you can take that and say, well, that's actually this story because during the day he's working for Norma and at night he comes in and works with Betty. Oh, good. (laughs) It's so good. It's a perfect movie. And Betty was such a nice foil too, because at the beginning she was talking about Joe even kind of braids her a little bit for believing in the movies going like she obviously loves them, but she also said something like, I think pictures should say a little something like, entertainment is good but like she grew up in it but on the outside like when they're walking through the town she's like i have access here just because of proximity like i don't i didn't grow up in money but i am third generation pictures because my grandma was like a set decorator or something like that and she's a stunt woman yeah stunt woman and like they had all these like menial tasks that aren't the glamour but she saw the power of it and wanted to use it for good and joe is her ticket to moving from reader to writer But she represents for him all of the potential and energy and the things that he's lost by that time, because like he's chosen to kind of divest himself of in the pursuit of like today, I got to eat money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I love how uh, Sheldrake, I love how he's like, well, I could give it to you, but, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And this, I love how they fade out on his whole story about how he keeps shifting money around. It feels like he's just like robbing Peter to pay Paul the whole time. And then when he goes to his agent and his agent's like, well, I could give you the money, but (laughs) it's like, no, you have to learn from this lesson, my boy. But you can go get a new agent. (laughs) He's out there on the golf course making with the sticks or whatever Joe says, which is a hilarious that's, odd that's line. A weird way to put that. Yeah. I'm like, is that Billy Wilder's English as a second language coming through? I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> and then, yeah, we should definitely talk about that final shot of the movie. The movie feels to me like it ends a few times. You know, we talked about the blowout with Betty. We talked about you know, Norma shooting Joe and him ending up in that pool. His walk as he was getting shot was just captivating. I I didn't remember how, how dramatic it was. Like he doesn't really fall the first time he gets shot. He kind of like somehow is continuing walking towards the pool. What I love about that is, is that it's just as melodramatic as it would have been in a silent film. So at the very end of it all, he does end up part of her story. And he does get his pool. And he could be the end of the film. It could just end with that whole thing about, you know, how gentle people are when you're dead. You know, that he wasn't being treated gently when he was alive, but he's definitely being treated gently when he's dead. But no, we have to have more to this movie. We have to have Norma in her bedroom with all those cops there and all and had a hopper there. And then when they talk about the news cameras there and she just perks up and you just see that light in her eyes and her eyes get so big. I mean, again, Gloria Swanton is killing this role. Mm. And when she comes down the stairs and I wish that they had done two takes of this because there are some people that are moving and otherwise there are so many people on that stairwell that are completely still because they're not there and she's just walking through them like yeah like they don't even exist extremely lynchian it's her and the camera and the music comes up and just max they're directing the cameras Oh my God, I love it. And then when she stops, like, again, that could have been the end of the movie. She could have walked right into the camera, but no, she has to stop and give that little speech about how she's so emotional. 
and so thankful to all the cameras, to the people that are there, and to the nice people out there in the dark. And she looks right at the audience. Yes, she looks she at us. She breaks the fourth wall and, and the people in the dark. And it's, yeah, I love that. Ah. Can you imagine being in a movie theater watching this at in that 1950? Point? I gotta say, I have an amazing local theater here in Kansas City. I gotta petition them to add this to the November roster here. I, I, I gotta see this in the theater. Imagine seeing this in 1950 when some of these stars of yesteryear you haven't seen in forever. Those those waxworks, you know, the all the references. If you turn on the subtitles for this thing, you're seeing names just flashing by because they are constantly, especially Artie is making all these references like, oh, yeah, Joe Gillis, the uh, uranium smuggler and Black Dahlia suspect. And I'm just like, wow, that would have hit in 1950 so different than it hits in 2022, you know, just because Black Dahlia had happened two years prior. I think. So it's like, wow. And all of these references that he's throwing out, like uh, when he's at the party, he's like, oh, well, I'm this type of person. And it's like, I have to Google what that means because I don't know most of these names that people are throwing out. It's almost lost to us some of these references, but the ones that hit, hit really hard. I actually was brought to tears by that final scene this time. It was just so emotional. And then you feel for Max too. Like I even felt for Max a little bit because in his own twisted, I do not need a Max origin story. I don't want one. I don't know what made him the way he is. He has got a weird sense of pride. He's like, that's the best ending for him because he's like, I got to give her her last movie. And like, you think about it after the credits roll, she's, I mean, her money and privilege may save her, but She's going to jail for murder. <laughs> like, that's what happens after the credits roll. She's not gaining fame at that point, but notoriety. So she kind of becomes uh, well-known again. For all the wrong reasons. Well, and also that that was laid out literally like after the pan f- up from the gutter. He's like, the the tabloids are going to say like aging slayer star or whatever. Like, like, cause I turned it back on. I, I wanted to watch certain scenes. And I was like, man, like this was. This is like the tightest movie I've seen in a very long time. When Max breaks from calling her Madame and calls her Norma when he's giving her the directions, just that one little change to say, are you ready, Norma? And it's like, oh, it's so good. Well, and it's funny and it's tense and it's weird, like, because the cops know she did it. They're trying to figure it out. And he, they give him that look where it's like, let her play. This guy's got a good idea to play along to help move her on without like a crazy big scene. And they're like, I guess we'll play along. And to your point, the people on the stairs, like in that weird kind of dream reality, like they're giving her her last performance and it's kind of beautiful in a twisted way. It's also recording her defense for not being sane. So uh, we can kind of extrapolate that she too. definitely she's got a solid insanity case. Yeah. And going back to Max for a second in that scene, I totally agree with you. Also, he seems to, in that moment when he calls her by her name, exerts an ownership over her that we have not seen through the whole film. It was the opposite for the rest of the film. It was uh, Norma who had the upper hand. She had the ownership. The only way that he can have that power is when he's actually directing her. Going back to that old Max von Meierling role. And letting her uh, play out in front of the cameras. It's so good. And that beautiful 
going into the blur and just as that it madness. Oh, it's so like good. I can see the blueprint. Like I can see what David Lynch saw, and I, I get it. I, I'm not on his wavelength, but I. This is this is the DNA exactly. I mean the the tilt back of her face as she's coming. It's so sinister. It's like a special effect, but it's just. It's like it. Her face distorts, but it doesn't. It's like an action, like a modern digital special effect almost happened, but it's just her mannerisms and just the power of that character she's created. You really could not do this, the original at least, with uh, an actress who had not been a silent film star. You really need somebody who knows all of those very strong, deliberate motions and the expressionist faces. A perfect film with a perfect cast. Well, yeah, she that um you made me think of that line when she was kind of griping about sound films in her home theater. She's like, we didn't need dialogue. We had faces. And then she gave a great one. And it's like, yeah, that's what that was the moneymaker. And again, she still looked great in this movie, but she was told, oh, like nobody wants to see a 50 year old face. And a lot of people didn't, sadly. And as much as she hates sound there's a time a boom like kind of comes near her and she just shoves it away (laughs) that was funny well the only thing that was missing was a musical so let's go ahead we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews first up we'll hear from stephen cohen the author of the new bfi book about sunset boulevard and after that we'll hear from jeffrey schwartz the director of boulevard a hollywood story and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Before we even start to talk about Sunset Boulevard, I'm very curious about you. Can you tell me a little bit about you and how you got into academia? I'd always been very academic. And I went straight through from my BA to my PhD at UCLA with a degree in English. My field was the the novel. So I've always been interested in narrative. And at the same time, I grew up in a movie household. Before I was born in the 40s, my parents would go to the movies twice a week. We always uh, we were one of the first houses to get TV. uh, And I I would go to the movies as a kid once a week. Uh, And this continued really, really through middle age. (laughs) Um, And I was an avid reader of variety as well as movie magazines. When I was in school, Film studies was really just starting. I took one or two courses at UCLA. I got into film itself as a, as a field through critical theory because the most interesting work in narrati- narrative theory was re- I found was really on film. Then getting a VCR um, sort of crystallized it because I realized I could look closely at a film the way I was trained to look closely at novels, at prose. And I co-wrote a book called Telling Stories, um, a theoretical analysis of narrative fiction for Routledge with a colleague, Linda Shires. And film 
along with other popular media, was one of our main main go-tos. And from then, I, I simply started um, teaching film. I created the film and screen studies program at Syracuse. And then we hired more people so that we had a, we could actually start staffing uh, dissertations. Uh, we needed three people, really, because it's a small department. And I like writing. Uh, so I retired in uh, 2014. And I just continue to do my research, and I've written this. This is the third book that came out since my retirement on Sunset Boulevard, and I've written like a dozen articles. And that's my academic story. Do you choose your projects, or do your projects choose you? In some ways, that's the same question. I choose my projects because they choose me, and my projects choose me because I choose them. The book on Sunset Boulevard came about. I had done this book on uh, the back studio picture, Hollywood by Hollywood. The book came out just before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out. So that isn't in the book. There is a section on Sunset Boulevard. And I actually began tinkering with the idea for the book by giving a lecture on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, I had done an article for a collection on the apartment plot. And my article was on Billy Wilder. So Sunset Boulevard was at the core of my interest in movies about making movies in Hollywood. My editor at Bloomsbury, which now publishes for the uh, British Film Institute, we've had a longstanding relation as she's moved from one press to another. And she asked if I wanted to do uh, film classics. And Sunset Boulevard just automatically came to mind as the as because I still felt I had yet to exhaust thinking and writing about the film. Perhaps that writing that book was the most pleasurable of all the books I've written. It was short, and uh, I wrote it during COVID lockdown, for the most part. And I was really lucky because the archival work that I needed to do was really available online. The one sort of blip was the production code files. But we have that in the library because uh, I got the library at SU to purchase. Uh, the, the Academy put out years ago a microfilm collection. Uh, but like I think there's like 100 of the most pertinent files. And one of them was Sunset Boulevard. So I had access to that. And um, otherwise, the diaries uh, were published. There were two new books on Wilder that came out while I was writing. There is a book on the making of Sunset Boulevard by Staggs that I, so the material was, was really there. And then I had no trouble accessing articles and newspapers, ads and so forth, because everything, I mean, so much research now is done online. So I was lucky in that way. I, I begin the book with that a motto from uh, Billy Wilder, where he said that everything just worked out. He wanted Paramount, he got Paramount. He wanted Queen Kelly, he got Queen Kelly. He wanted DeMille, he got DeMille. And I felt the same way writing the book. Everything I needed was there. <laughs> How do you even go about defining what you're going to talk about when it comes to Sunset Boulevard? Because it is one of those films in the Pantheon. and just I found that actually to be the easiest because... Well, in comparison to the other book, The Hollywood by Hollywood, which was turned out to be a very large book, it was 125,000 or 130,000 words. In the Sunset Boulevard, I think it's 20. And the films range from silence to the present day. And organizing that and deciding what to write and what 
to cut. A few outtakes, actually, I was able to work into the Sunset Boulevard book on some other films, references to some other films that I, I cut sections from, from the Hollywood book. So the Sunset Boulevard, it mainly was, the, for me, the big question was, do I start with the, the, the first chapter doing the interpretations, or do I start with the making of? And I'd initially thought I would go with that route. And in writing it, I realized, no, you start with the making of, and then you do the interpretations. So I actually found it much easier to organize and decide what to do. Uh, um, things just sort of load in, in that regard. I mean, the making of chapter is easy because it's a chronology. And then the interpretations, it just seemed logical to begin where I began with talking about the acting styles of the two stars and the back studio plot and work from there. So I, my sense is that the continuity of the interpretation flows organically to conclude with film noir, as opposed to beginning with film noir. And I talk about film noir throughout because I talk about it in the, in the, when I talk about the cinematography and the lighting and, and the set and so forth. This was actually one of the easiest books to organize when I think about it and to decide what to include and what not to include. I mean, basically, the constraint was the word limit because the, there's a format to the, to the series in terms of their length. That just meant like cutting a sentence here or there just that I thought was unnecessary. How does Sunset Boulevard fit into that overall history of Hollywood kind of turning the cameras around and looking at itself? It marks a turn from over two decades of Hollywood movies about Hollywood. It begins in the silence. And some of those, I mean, it begins with some short subjects, which are comedic. Chaplin has a few. Basically, in the 30s, most of the narratives are about female stars. You know, the, the quintessential one is A Star is Born, and there's also What Price Hollywood. But there are many others um, that are also about young women breaking into Hollywood. And so some of this is selling the glamour and working out um, the industry's own sort of own problems or own anxieties, rather, about females, uh, about women arriving in Los Angeles with a desire to uh, to become big stars, and they're not having work for them. And some of them become prostitutes. Some of them live on the street. Some of them go home disappointed. At the same time, movies are very much appealing to women fans. And the female demographic is crucial, is actually central to the production of movies. And in the 30s and then in the 40s, women are, are, uh, stars are, are really powerful in Hollywood. Films are built around them. And, and the studios have a, a cohort of female stars. And female stars alone can sell a picture. This is, and this never happens again after really 1950. All right. And there are a few films. There's Boy Meets Girl, which is based on a Broadway farce, which is about writers. There are a couple films about actors. I mention a few in my book. In the 40s, the interest in Hollywood films about Hollywood sort of lags a bit. Um, there are, I mean, they, they continue to make them uh, and they still focus on women for the most part. 
So Sunset Boulevard marks a turn because it's the it's the beginning of a more jaundiced view of Hollywood. And it's also the beginning of a turn against women in, in this genre. So what you have in the in the 50s are increasingly a series of films about older women, older female stars. There's Sunset Boulevard. There's The Star. Later in the decade, there's the female uh, animal with Hedy Lamarr as an older actress. Now, there are some films about men. There's The Bad and the Beautiful about uh, a male producer based on Selznick. There is The Big Knife, which is based on a Chayefsky play. Chayefsky also wrote the, uh, I think it's called The Actress, which Kim Stanley plays a version of Marilyn Monroe. It then takes another shift in 62 with Baby Jane. And that, cre- and that then starts the cycle of older, older actresses past their prime in horror films that are partly campy and partly straight horror. At the same time, in the 60s, you start having a, a shift towards um, films about male creatives. And this corresponds with really the diminishment of women at the box office, in the top 10, um, and you um, also with the uh, d- diminishment of an interest in the female audience, for the, except for certain kind of genres like the rom-com or melodrama, and those are not made as much. And the star narrative, as I argue, really moves to television with with star biopics, the number of Monroe biopics, biopics about Elizabeth Taylor and Audrey Hepburn and Rita Hayworth and so forth. Uh, while at the same time, you have now a n- renewed interest in Hollywood's history, because there is a history to look back on. In the 40s, there are already a few films about the coming of sound. I mean, in addition to the Jolson story, there is what's it called? Uh, is it the Hollywood Cavalcade? I think with uh, Michi and and Alice Faye, I, um, which is about the coming of sound, um, which is one of the ethical events in the history of Hollywood that Sunset Boulevard also plays on. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, Norma Desmond has only been out of work like twelve years, and and. She, you know, I point out how Henry Wilcoxon, who basically would have been her her contemporary, is acting still and then goes into producing. You think, why doesn't she just produce and direct Salome instead of starring in it? So you have this a a lot of of films about Hollywood's history, which coincides with a nostalgic craze overall in, in popular culture. I don't think that there is much nostalgia in Sunset Boulevard. And and there isn't a great deal of nostalgia in the films about has-been stars in the 50s either. So what you have, as I say, in the, what Sunset Boulevard does is it, it starts um, a cycle of self-reflexive, self-critical films about Hollywood, even if they're still perpetuating the myth of Hollywood. Sunset Boulevard, say, differs from The Bad and the Beautiful because The Bad and the Beautiful is caught up in the myth of Hollywood, even at the same time as trying to critique it. If you know at the end, when the three, the three players who have refused ever to work with Jonathan Shields again get caught up in his new movie plan 
when they're listening on the phone. And there is the implication that they will probably change their mind, that they cannot resist his mystique. And that mystique is really torn asunder in, in Sunset Boulevard. And I think that's why I like it so much. It's just a marvelous film. <laughs> You've also written about camp in your incongruous entertainment book. Can you tell me the role that camp plays in the film? I don't think it's a it's a campy film. I think that Norma Desmond has become a camp figure extra filmically um, through her her because of her presence in popular culture. I mean, you think about Carol Burnett's wonderful parodies of Norma Desmond over the years. Um, and the reason is that Norma Desmond herself is a figure of excess. So, she, so the figure lends itself to more ex, ex, to additional excess. Hence, you have the possibility uh, of her being a camp figure. I don't think that she is a camp figure in Sunset Boulevard itself. Um, I think that there's too much pathos and too much self-deception on her part and too much determination of her to get back on the screen, those three elements in, in her character. And I don't think that um, uh, Gillis's narration provides a camp viewpoint with which to see her. But I think at the afterlife of the film allows for camp pleasure. And there's certainly a good deal of humor in the film. I mean, it's like Psycho, which is also a very, very funny film. Once you get past the horror, uh, the dialogue in Sunset Boulevard, like the dialogue in Psycho, is very, very self-aware, and it's very, very funny. And there's some very funny lines in Gillis's narration. And there are scenes of Norma's excessive behavior where you don't know whether to cry for her or to laugh at her because of her ex because of her melodrama that she's continually playing up. Um, after the film, I think that it does enable a possible camp audience to appreciate the irony and the pathos, the humor. I don't, I, I think it just borders on camp. The figure herself, I think becomes uh, a, a, can become a camp figure. And I don't know if it's possible to watch, say, the musical version of Sunset Boulevard and not see camp in it. I certainly thought it was unintentionally campy when I saw it when it first opened. I thought it was a musical about a staircase. I, I wasn't terribly impressed. I don't know. I don't know why it was musicalized, but I also am not certain if I, I was thinking about it yesterday that Billy Wilder is probably the only director whose films have seated more than one musical or the say writer, really, because there's Promises, Promises based on the apartment. There's Sunset Boulevard and there are two versions of Some Like It Hot. There was one in, I think, in the 70s and there's one that's opening in the, uh, in the fall. It's in rehearsal now. It's a it's a new version with new a new score and a new book, and 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 so there's there's three films right there. I'm waiting for Double Indemnity now to become a musical, double with an exclamation mark. <laughs> I also think that music, as a as a rule, not as a rule, but music in general, a musical has a a, a large wider potential for camp because of the um, excess. Because of the spectacle, 
because of the split between the star performing a number and the star as the character performing a number, um, which may be why I my response to the musical version of Sunset Boulevard was was to see it having more potential itself to be to be watched with for camp pleasure. And I don't think of camp as derogatory. Uh, I, I think that that there's great pleasure in watching camp. Did you find anything surprising while you're doing your research and putting this all together? There was one that tickled me, which was the double bills of All About Eve and um, Sunset Boulevard. The uh, TV version with Mary Astor. I have taught Sunset Boulevard so many times over the years, and I've written on it several times and given lectures on it. Um, I don't know where my thoughts begin and where they ended. So in terms of, of the interpretation, I at least was building on thoughts I'd had over the years that some of which were developed, some of which were not, some of which I'd articulated, some of which were inchoate. So I I don't know if there was anything terribly, terribly surprising in that chapter. I will say that little section on Fedora, which I knew I wanted to include, I had had a section on Fedora in the Hollywood book which I cut. I had to cut a few sections because of length. And I felt I was bored reading that section on Fedora. I was bored writing on that on Fedora. And I basically imported as a template to begin drafting what I had written. And it somehow came alive and came together in the context of Sunset Boulevard, whereas it hadn't in uh, in, where I had it in the uh, in the bigger book. So that was a surprise, how how nicely Fedora fit in to uh, sort of mark the closure of the book. So those are the really the surprises that um, stand out. I, I tell you, writing, I get so uh, immersed in what I'm writing that I lose a sense of what I had known beforehand because I become so it becomes so familiar to me. I mean, I looked at I looked at numerous newspapers ads. I read numerous reviews. I was surprised at how successful Sunset Boulevard was in first runs in big cities because it does have a reputation of not being terribly successful. It had a very good run at Radio City Music Hall. It had a really good run in Los Angeles and in uh, Chicago. I was also surprised at how some of the ads, I don't know if this, this, I don't think I worked its way in the book, except in one of the newspaper ads that I include, um, how it featured Joe and Betty as the central couple. That surprised me. So there were little surprises in, uh, going along from, from, my, uh, from my research. And in terms of the making of, I read the Stag book first, and I think I read it on its own as a pleasurable book before I even thought about writing this. So I, I reread it for writing the, the Sunset Boulevard book. I had a general sense of its production, but the nuances that I write about were all discoveries because there was the diaries, there were the, the biographies then which I read, um, there, there were uh, articles in, a, uh, in Life, and uh, I don't remember where the, I, I think the other one was in Look. Um, and, and then there were, uh, and so forth. And those, so the nuances were discoveries. 
when you were teaching Sunset Boulevard, how were your students reacting in those last few years? How would they actually take that film? I actually went back right during the beginning of COVID. I was teaching the Hollywood course as an adjunct to my department. They needed one more film course. And it was the one course that I had not been able to teach my final year. I did my rotation of my favorite courses and I wasn't able to do that one. So uh, so I have taught Sunset Boulevard a little bit more recently than 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 that. It always goes over extremely well. Um, and there's always a student or two who don't realize that Gillis is dead as a narrator. That always is. I mean, and I think it's it's a classic case of Freudian disavowal in that you you know, if you know what William Holden looks like, you know the body, you see his face, you hear his voice. You hear him saying he's dead and you don't believe it <laughs> because when it goes back into the flashback, it's so vivid. There always is a tension in responses between those who really see it as Gillis's film and those who see it as Norma's film. And there is also a temptation to see Norma uh, as simply the, the crazy villain. And I think that's one reason why I begin where I begin that third chapter, just uh, where I begin really sympathetically with her uh, and talking about her figure uh, before I get to her talk as the monster or the femme fatale toward the very end of that chapter. But it always, it's a very, very successful film. It's an, in that sense, it's an easy film to teach. What they don't fully get, I have them read one of the articles about the different acting styles. And I don't know if they fully appreciate that. Um, I don't know if they're that uh, uh, perceptive for looking at those kinds of distinctions in terms of how, how the two are acting opposite each other. But it's a very easy film to teach. Other films, like I taught the, the Stuntman in one iteration of the, of the class, which is a really interesting film. And it was, regretfully, I didn't include it, much of it in my book. Um, it just didn't fit. And that one divided the class where people just found it boring and incomprehensible and others just really, really, really loved it. And I had ended this last class uh, with Hail Caesar, which I really like a lot. And the jokes were all over their head. Even, I, I mean, at that point we were on lockdown. And uh, so we were all Zooming. And I did a... I. Uh, the films were all uploaded so they didn't have, so they could watch it on their own. Um, and I set up for anyone who wanted to come uh, a, a screening where we would watch it through Netflix. Um, and I would answer any questions and comments and I would give them like footnotes for all of the backstory. Only four students showed up. That was okay. There were only 11 in the class. So what I mean, but I could tell that they really really did not get the film the way I did. I have I had found over the years that if the professor generates a lot of enthusiasm for a film and if the students like the professor they will be very game and they will they will want to like it too. And I really tried to generate a lot of enthusiasm for that one. I didn't have to generate much for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> What are you working on now? I'm working on a book on Audrey Hepburn. 
for Oxford. They have a series called Opinionated Guides. So they uh, they have one. They published ones on Streisand and Sondheim. I think my editor is reviving the series, and he has a few in the hopper. Uh, and uh, I, I I wanted to do one, and the stars I was thinking about. I wanted to do one with a limited filmography. Um, I was thinking, for instance, of doing Doris Day. Um, whom I've always liked. And I think that their, uh, uh, her, her screen persona is much more complex than a lot of people acknowledge. There's one book by Tamara Jeffers MacDonald, uh, uh, which talks about the complexity of, of her. And there was a, oh, a dossier that the BFI did like 30 years ago on her called Move Over Misconception. But she has that TV show, and I didn't really feel like wanting to make that investment of five years of, of a TV sitcom. I'd always liked Audrey Hepburn. She also worked with three of my favorite directors, um, Wilder, Weiler, and Donnan. So I really do like her films a lot. And, uh, and it's, it's been fun working on it so far. No chapter is finished. And so I'm still, this is one where I'm still thinking about organizing material because I'm not doing it first one film, then another, then another, because that would involve a lot of repetition. So I'm still thinking about how to organize not only the chapters, but what to say in what chapter about which film, you know, so I have a chapter on the Cinderella narratives, say with Sabrina, but I also have a chapter on her and Givenchy, say Sabrina. <laughs> so... Sabrina's going to be in a lot of it. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I'm working on on right now. I just uh, wrote a, a piece on two Stanwyck films, The uh, File on Thelma Jordan and No Man of Her Own, and how their advertising really opened up ways of reading the film as either a melodrama or film noir, or what I'm calling melodramatic noir. Uh, and that's And that uh, is coming out in a French bilingual journal that's doing a special issue on film noir. So right now my focus is on uh, on doing Hepburn, and so Wilder's there. I mean, I have realized that if that I'm not an auteur, but I've done auteur work on Billy Wilder, and I have a poster for the apartment, and I have a poster for Sunset Boulevard, and some like it. So I think Wilder is probably my favorite director. <laughs> which was another reason I chose Sunset Boulevard. I think it's my favorite Wilder, although there are a lot, I have a lot of favorite Wilders. He's an easy one to like. He is. He is. Uh, and his work in the 50s is very eclectic. When you think about you know, like he did Witness for the Prosecution, The Spirit of St. Louis, Seven Year Itch. He did those films just because he wanted to flex. And he did Stalag 17, Sabrina. He did those films just because he wanted to sort of flex his generic interests, um, and the same in the uh, in the in the '40s. Really, I'm I'm much less interested in his in his late films. Professor Cohen, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've had a lot of fun, and uh, maybe we'll do it again on an, uh, with another one of your theme works if if uh, a film I'm interested in. Yes, so please keep me in mind. 
Sunset Boulevard come about? Well, I've always loved Sunset Boulevard uh, from the time I was a little kid, even before I saw the movie. I remember seeing the Carol Burnett sketches where she's parodying Sunset Boulevard, but I didn't actually know it was a movie until uh, later. And I just saw it and fell in love with it and saw it you know, multiple, multiple times. I first heard about this story through the book by Sam Staggs. And Sam Staggs wrote Close Up on Sunset Boulevard. And Sam Staggs uh, is a wonderful writer. Can't recommend his books enough. And he's done books on All About Eve and Streetcar Named Desire and Imitation of Life and Sunset Boulevard. And the chapter in Sunset Boulevard about the musical was the thing that sparked the idea to make this documentary. And also that she worked with these two young men who were also a couple to write this show. And so there was a chapter, I don't know, it was like 10 or 15 pages. And it was a great sort of introduction to the subject matter, but I wanted to know more. And in the chapter, there was an interview with a guy named Alan Eichler, who was a friend of mine. And he was involved with this story in a way that it will be revealed in the film. And I called him up and said, oh my God, Alan, I, I would love to know more about this story. And he said, I've been waiting for somebody to call me about this for 25 years <laughs> because he knew there was a story there. And then that just sort of led to going down the path of uncovering this true story that had never really been told before. When does he reveal that he has a recording with one of the men behind the musical? Well, Alan Eichler, who was my friend, he was like, you really have to talk to this guy, Stephen Bach. And Stephen Bach is a music publisher. And he was close friends with one of the two men, Richard Stapley. And they came in, Richard came into my friend Stephen's life. And Stephen was the one, this was back in the early 2000s, when Richard told him the whole story of the musical and this sort of love triangle that developed between him, his boyfriend, and Gloria Swanson, this guy, Stephen, was like, I got to get this on tape. So he actually arranged to have Richard sit down and tell the entire story. And so when I met Stephen, uh, he said, oh, yeah, I've got this interview with Richard. I've got his autobiography that was never published. I've got all his writings. And so as you make a documentary like this, you really never know what's going to un be uncovered. And when I first started this, I really thought it would mostly be about the musical and the writing of the musical. And it is certainly a big part of the film. But more and more, as the research started to uh, reveal itself, it became more and more about Richard and also Dixon Hughes, who was his boyfriend during this whole period, and also what happened to them after the writing of the musical, because during the course of the writing of the musical, it basically broke them up. And then the film just follows them and what <clears throat> shows what happened to them after this as they into the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and into the 90s when they kind of come back together again in this very bizarre way. So uh, it was a, a story that I, I thought I knew at the beginning, and then it just went in a, a very different direction by the time we started actually making the movie. The interview with Richard Stapley must have felt like the heavens opened up and it just fell in your lap. I always look for topics that are supported with really amazing archival. And I didn't know that this tape existed of Richard Stapley. So that was a miracle. And, you know, Richard, as it's revealed in the film, you know, he was a very closeted guy. This is this is the 50s. So um, the fact that he was in a relationship with another man couldn't be openly discussed, couldn't be openly acknowledged. So Dixon was his writing partner, and that's how they presented themselves to the world. But with and Richard Stapley, you know, he was an actor. He was under contract with MGM briefly. You know, he did a bunch of movies. He never really broke through to any kind of stardom, but he did come to Hollywood from England and he did have a, a, a brief Hollywood career. And he was trained in the, the ways of the world during that time, you know, much like the Rock Hudson's of the world, you know, your private life is, 
is something that would never be discussed because you could lose your entire career like instantly and you would be persona non grata in Hollywood. It just certain things were just not talked about. And he still had that in him. So I never got to meet Richard, but watching the interview that my friend Stephen did with him, you could tell there were areas that he was just not comfortable talking about. But he did, as time went on, get a little bit more comfortable talking about this stuff, especially when he wrote his autobiography that was never published, but I was able to read it. He did start sort of going into that area, but it's still a very sort of closety uh, uh, approach to an autobiography. But the movie brings it all out of the open, which we can do now. You know, these stories, you know, they couldn't have really been told in the times that they were being lived. And so I, I love finding stories like that, that now we can kind of openly talk about this stuff and acknowledge these love stories that that happened. And they were there in plain sight if people wanted to see them, but most people didn't want to see. They would just sort of prefer not to acknowledge that these things even existed. Well, speaking of archive footage, I mean, my God, all of the clips of Gloria Swanson are just amazing, especially that you have her singing some of these songs. Gloria had the idea to do this musical. So um, I'm sure your listeners will know, but um, just in case, you know, Sunset Boulevard was uh, a huge hit and it was sort of a comeback movie for Gloria Swanson. And Gloria Swanson had been a silent movie star beyond star. I mean, she was she was, uh, you know, Beyonce times Lady Gaga times, you know, Rihanna times whatever, like the biggest star in the world. And she uh, when silent movies gave way to talking pictures, the the fame didn't really the, the, her notoriety continued, but she stopped really making movies that were really significant in film history. You know, there were a few talkies, but they never really broke through. But she was still in the public eye. She was still known and she still lived like a movie star, but more of just like famous for being famous, not really for the role she was playing, but just for being Gloria Swanson. And people loved her still and people grew up with her and followed her career. Um, so by the time Sunset Boulevard came around, she was still in the public eye, but she wasn't acting. And Billy Wilder connected with her and realized that she was going to be the perfect person to play the part of Norma Desmond. And once they cast her, the character developed um, into in such a way that it really paralleled a lot, paralleled a lot of things in the real Gloria Swanson's life. But she was not in real life a recluse or, you know, delusional in any way. She was very smart, very savvy, but she played the role so well that people thought that she was Norma Desmond. And once the movie came out, it was this big comeback role for her. And there was talk of her getting an Oscar nomination, which she ultimately did get an Oscar nomination. But that year, the 1950 Academy Awards was a very competitive year. You know, Betty Davis was up uh, for All About Eve. And so she ended up not winning the Oscar. And there really weren't a lot of roles for her after Sunset Boulevard. You know, she was so closely defined with that character that the role she was being offered was sort of along the lines of Sunset uh -huh. Boulevard. And she didn't want to do that, but she still wanted to work and she still wanted to maintain that uh, notoriety and also make a living. So she had the idea to do Sunset Boulevard as a musical. <clears throat> this was at a time when that wasn't really done. You know, that there were a few examples of it, but now so many movies are turned into musicals. It'd be rare if there was a movie that wasn't a musical now, but Sunset Boulevard also didn't really lend itself to being a musical. It's so dark and it's darkly comic, but it's also very tragic. And the kinds of musicals that were being made in the 50s were, were not that. They were more like My Fair Lady or Oklahoma or things that were a little more upbeat. But she had this in her head. If they want me to be Norma Desmond, I'll just be Norma Desmond, you know, every night on Broadway. So she connected with Richard and, and Dixon and the three of them 
uh, started writing this musical together. And I was so happy to find that um, not only did the libretto of the musical survive, but there were test recordings that that Gloria did with Dixon at the piano. So all the songs that they wrote survived as recordings. And Gloria put all of her archives into the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas. So they had all the recordings. They And also, you know, when, you, when you're doing a doc, sometimes things sound too good to be true. Like, could this really, really have happened? But then when I started going through her personal photos, I found photos of the three of them together, you know? And so that proved that this really did happen. So the the archives were incredible that there was all this, she saved everything from her entire career. She was a real pack rat and she did save material on the musical. So there were some folders with photos, uh, the songs themselves, recordings, all the different scripts, all her notes. It was really, really amazing um, to find that stuff. One other tool that you use to tell the story are these drawings and uh, animations, you know, slight animations, but mostly these just gorgeous drawings. Can you tell me about the artist and how that came about? I thought that this film would have animation. It just lent itself to it. And there's so many sort of little stories that are very heightened and kind of bigger than life stories. And I would love to show um, an artistic interpretation of these stories and so who was going to be the right artist to interpret Gloria and Richard and Dixon? And there's a, an artist named Maurice Bellacoupe. And I always loved his work. Um, when uh, I was getting into underground comics in the late 80s and 90s, he he was one of the artists that I was really drawn to. And he he can draw these sort of bigger than life glamorous, glamazon women. Uh, he did a whole series of opera stars, and opera singers, you know, and his work is just beautiful. And um, he's also really amazing with period detail too so he just was the perfect person to do this so we we came up with maybe i don't know 10 or 12 or 14 um, animated vignettes and he sketched them out and uh, drew them in a very simple you know drew them in such a way almost like a graphic novel approach and then we had um, some partners up in in canada animate them and uh i just love the work that he did and there's all sort of little in jokes too for film fans like the first time that Gloria Swanson appears uh, to 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 meet Richard and Dixon, you know, the, the doors open up and there she is. And the the gown that she's wearing in the animation is Rosalind Russell's dress from Auntie Mame, you know. So that's only something you would know if you were like a super film geek. And and he 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 worked in a lot of these little details. And I love the way he drew Richard and Dixon too. And he um he really captured their personalities too and also you have to have these characters age too so he he was able to find a way to age them into their 60s and 70s and, and 80s i'm so proud to have his work in the film he's a brilliant brilliant um uh, uh, uh artist one of the voices in the film points out that gloria hires these two guys who are pretty much unknown rather than going to your Lerner and Loeb and these type of guys who are known for their musical hits. Why do you think that she paired up with Dixon and Richard? I think they just showed up one day. I mean, that is literally what happened. They Richard and Dixon were young, struggling songwriters and looking for a break, really. And so they wrote a review, a musical review, and they were looking for a star. So they ended up meeting Gloria and they pitched the idea of this musical review and she said to them, no, I don't want to go back to Broadway. I just can't do it. The only thing that I would want to do, maybe, is if someone would write me a musical version of Sunset Boulevard. And I think she just showed up. They just showed up in her orbit. It wasn't like she was out 
looking for writers. They just showed up. And I think she believed in fate. You know, she was a spiritual person. I think she just believed in fate and believed that this was all sort of, quote, meant to be, unquote. So she um, she called up Paramount and supposedly got the rights to Sunset Boulevard. Uh, and the three of them went ahead and, and did this. And, you know, during the course of the writing of the musical, she started to develop feelings for Richard, who is a very, very handsome, charismatic young man. And one of the reasons I thought this could make a great a documentary is because there were so many parallels to the story of Sunset Boulevard. You know, in, in Sunset Boulevard, a young writer shows up in, in Norma Desmond's world and she hires him to write sort of a, uh, her comeback vehicle, which is which he knows isn't really all that great, but he does it anyway because he needs a job. But a little bit similar in this situation, although I think they all had high hopes. You know, they really went into this with no cynicism and really feeling like, they could do something great. And um, if you read the uh, libretto and if you read the script for the musical, like they, it, it's definitely different than the Billy Wilder version. It's much more like, you know, in Sunset Boulevard, the movie, Norma Desmond's not the main character. That's really William Holden. But in their version, it is really told through Gloria's, uh, through Norma's point of view. And she's actually much more sympathetic. And then she had a lot of ideas that she wanted Billy Wilder to do that he didn't necessarily agree with. And he's the director, so he had to get his way. But now she was like settling some scores. You know, she could have Norma be more sympathetic, at least in her mind. Like she didn't want, uh, it was interesting to find out her disagreements with the character in the movie. Like she didn't want Norma Desmond to be rich in the musical. She wanted her to be selling her jewels to, uh, you know, to fund uh, her, her comeback vehicle, right? So there are little things like that that are different in the, in their version of the music, their version of the musical than, than in the movie. How do they treat the Max character there? Max is in the musical, in their version. It's pretty close to the original movie. They did add some things, like they added um, these map sellers, like people who are selling maps to the stars, so um, they added uh, an astrologer is in there somewhere. And there's a song about the signs of the Zodiac. And it, there's some interesting choices. Like if you hear it, I don't know that there's a, even one or two songs that really jump out as like, oh, this is like could be a hit song because the Broadway musicals of the time, like that was the popular music of the day. So Frank Sinatra or Peggy Lee, or, you know, who you name them, they would record these songs and they'd become top top 40 hits but i didn't really hear anything in this musical that that really popped out to me the songs are it's it's a, more of a curio to listen to them the songs are uh i wouldn't say they're the greatest musical songs in the world maybe that had something to do with why the show ultimately didn't didn't go but they're fascinating to listen to and um and we were able to use a lot of them in the film and i love how this story isn't just this isolated incident that takes place after sunset boulevard comes out that it really becomes this decades long journey and that you're able to keep up with all of these different quote unquote characters, all these real people that were involved in this for so many years after what basically the project fell apart. Yeah. The project falls apart and, but their lives go on, you know, Gloria kind of just walked away from the wreckage and her life went on, but Dixon and Richard, you know, this, this was the thing that broke them up and they went their separate ways and it was so fascinating to learn what happened to Richard and what happened to Dixon. You know, Richard um, ended up, it's all in the film, but Richard ended up uh, reviving his acting career. He changed his name from Richard Stapley to Richard Weiler. And he went to to Europe and Italy and did like spaghetti Westerns. And he had a whole new career. And then he ended up getting a, a lead role on a British TV show called uh, 
the man from Interpol, right? And so he was actually well well known briefly and again, but under different names. Like nobody could Google, you know, the old version of him. So he could he could just sort of reinvent himself, which is so fascinating. And Dixon too went on to have a really interesting career and and doing uh, cabaret and uh, being musical director for different shows. And you know, he had a long uh, long career. And um, but they, none of them really let go of the dream of of doing this. And even Dixon. And Richard, well, Dixon ended up writing his own version of these events and did did them as a um, sort of a musical review cabaret show. And that's that was in the 90s. And that's sort of that's sort of where our story goes in the in the third act of the film. Yeah. When I first read about your project, I was like, oh, he must be making a documentary about the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, never knowing that this other musical existed. Well, that's the other thing. I think if people, Broadway fans and people who know about the Sunset Boulevard musical that was ultimately made. I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, of course, the, the famous uh, impresario, Broadway impresario from England, he he ended up doing Sunset Boulevard. He ended up doing what they all tried to do, but were not successful. And Andrew Lloyd Webber, whatever he wants to do, he gets to do, right? So he ended up getting those rights and he did um, Sunset Boulevard with Glenn Close. Um, various actresses played uh, Norma, but Glenn Close ended up sort of owning that role and it won the Tony and it was a huge hit. And meanwhile, Rick, uh, Dixon is in Hollywood and watching this all happen and really feeling very despondent about it all because, you know, they, he felt so close to it for so many years. That's when he got the idea to do his own version of it and sort of tell the story of their of their making of. Um, I don't want to give too much away because that's when uh, that's when the, the S hits the fan pretty much in our film. I noticed there's a lot of skype calls in your movie were you affected by the pandemic with this we were in the middle of making the movie when COVID hit and i still had a bunch of interviews to do we were going to go to uh do a big shoot in austin texas at the archives which we did we had to cancel and that was in april of 2020 we were all ready to go i never got a refund on those plane tickets by the way uh but we were going to go and you know we just had to sort of pivot like they say and adapt and I think for me, it actually made it maybe a better film because somewhere along the line, we decided that we were going to show a little bit of how this movie was being made and include me as a filmmaker in there, talking to people, going through archives, digging things up. And I thought it might add another layer of interest to the movie to sort of, you know, bear the the process and um, get into the archives, see the material Um share with the audience a little bit of the detective work that goes on when you're making a documentary like this. So they, the COVID actually uh, put moved the movie in a different direction that I actually really like. But now I think you, you look back and you can see, you could tell when these movies are being made, if there's like an interview outdoors and you can hear the interviewer, clearly there's a mask on them um, uh, or if it's over, over zoom or Skype uh, that's, those are these COVID era movies, but um, you know, I spent COVID just basically editing and sitting in my house editing, and that's what I do anyway. So we were able to track down Richard's wife, who I didn't even know existed until a few years into the process. Like I knew he was married, but I didn't know that she was still around. And we ended up tracking her down and she was in England and she didn't want to go on camera. So, you know, doing it over Skype was the right way to do it. And uh, and I, I don't know. I feel like it was uh, it was the right thing for this movie. I wouldn't do it for other movies necessarily, but it was the right. And I wouldn't personally probably I don't think I'll ever appear in, in another movie again because it's not something I generally 
I'm not really that comfortable with the idea, but I did it just because it just seemed right. And I had a collaborator, my friend Elijah Drenner, who you might know, he was helping me with the edit. And he was just really encouraging me and pushing me to go in that direction of including myself in the film and including the 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 archaeology aspect of it. So um, you can credit him or blame him if, if you don't think it works. In a movie that seems full of surprises, what was the biggest surprise for you? The biggest surprise for me is what happened to these two guys as they aged, you know, because I was, uh, like I said earlier, I, I didn't really know that the movie was really going to be about them, but it seemed right. And it really became more and more about Richard Stapley. And that's not somebody that I'd ever heard of. I don't think most people have ever heard of even film fans. He's not a name that people would recognize necessarily, but I was really moved by him because he, he, he parallels the Norma Desmond character a lot, actually, sort of a male version of Norma, in that he never really let go. He had that initial burst of fame, and he never really let go of that. Um, and he was always striving, striving, striving. And that wasn't just about fame. I, mean, I think it was about just respect and recognition. And um, and he he was um, I was really touched by his journey, you know, because he never gave up on that dream that so many people have of being a contributor in Hollywood, whether it's acting or writing or whatever it might be, you know, he, he was writing every day until literally the, he couldn't, you know, um, take his head off the pillow. You know, he was, he was, he, I don't know, his, his, he's sort of a tragic figure. And um, I was, I was uh, touched by him. And also uh, I felt like the movie was an opportunity to honor him and also to honor Dixon and, and Gloria, you know, Gloria's, probably best known for Sunset Boulevard, but there's so much more to her. And um, I think the three of them, uh, as they aged, you know, the world can be very cruel and the world doesn't necessarily, and Hollywood doesn't necessarily respect age and the wisdom that comes with age and what older people can contribute, you know? So one of the themes of the movie, I think is, is what it, what it means to, to get older and to feel sometimes that you're not as valued as you'd like to be, you know? And I think as we we uh, get older, and I feel that too, you know, I want to still be here to contribute, and uh, want to. And there's so many people who have so much to say that aren't don't get the opportunity because of ageism in Hollywood. And uh, so I'm I'm gonna keep making movies until I drop dead. Hopefully, I know that you've got a lot of projects in the hopper. What are some of the other things that we can expect from you soon? I'm working on a doc called Commitment to Life, which is about the AIDS crisis in Los Angeles, and particularly how Hollywood responded to the AIDS crisis, which is a story that has been sort of told in bits and pieces, but I don't think people know the full scope of it. Um, you know, Rock Hudson was uh, the, you know, the, the epidemic had been around for a few years before it was became known that Rock Hudson had AIDS. But he, for a lot of people, he was the first person that your average um, person knew who had AIDS because they felt like they had a relationship with him and they loved, people loved Rock Hudson, you know? So to see him uh, suffering from this really did change things. And that was tied up in his very close friend, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, getting involved in the AIDS fight. So the documentary is uh, sponsored by AIDS Project Los Angeles, which is now known as APLA Health. And AIDS Project Los Angeles was the first um, service organization here in LA. So you know, every city has their own story and LA has a really fascinating, unique story. And so many of the people were lucky uh, who were the heroes of this are still here to, to talk about it. So it's sort of a profiles and courage uh, during the AIDS crisis. So it's sort of our, the LA version of how to survive a plague, which is really the New York story and act up and the activism. But this is, this is Hollywood 
I think it's a story people will be really surprised uh, to hear. And what's next for Boulevard? When can people see this? Boulevard's been playing on the festival circuit since last year, and we're pretty much wrapped up with the festival circuit, and we have a distributor now. The movie's available. You can find it on all of your platforms, uh, all your usual places, iTunes, YouTube, Google Play, Amazon Prime, all those things. So just uh, keep an eye out for Boulevard, a Hollywood story. And we even are going to have a DVD with extras, I know. So trying to keep the physical media alive. Our distributor has been really great to make that an option for us. So I love to see all the movies on a shelf, you know, so it's really nice. I can see your shelf back there with all your with all your DVDs and Blu-rays. Where's the best place to, for people to keep up with you and your projects? Uh, automatpictures.com is my site and boulevardmovie.com is the Boulevard site. So you can find out more about the film there and uh, we'll be releasing more information about our release very, very soon. Well, Jeffrey, it's always great talking with you. Thank you so much. I love talking with you and thank you for keeping your uh, your podcast going and your scholarship going and doing all these great interviews and the deep dive. I love the deep dive. My first name is Gloria and I have just finished a picture at Paramount called uh, Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard is one of the greatest movies ever made. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I don't think anyone could have played that part but Gloria Swanson. And Sunset Boulevard was her crowning moment. I wonder if I might ask you a personal question. You want to know my age? Gloria Swanson was only 50, but that was old then. And after Sunset Boulevard, no one was asking me uh, to make another picture. She never regained a foothold after Sunset Boulevard, but she was wise enough to know that Sunset Boulevard was her ticket. I'll show them I'll be up there again, so help me. The fabulous Gloria Swanson herself. She developed this mad idea to adapt her film Sunset Boulevard as a musical. And she approached my writing partner and I to do this. There was no mystery that Richard and Dixon were a couple. Gloria was starting to have romantic inclinations towards Richard, who she knew was in a relationship with Dixon. So you had the real-life story of a mature woman fascinated by a younger man, happening both in the Sunset Boulevard storyline and in the true life storyline that we were living. I have a hunch that romance and love are not dead. She was an extraordinary person. Coming in contact with Gloria Swanson, it was complicated. Unintended masses become uncontrollable. Richard was a looker, very handsome, very macho, very gay. As far as the public was concerned, he was a straight guy. Obviously, there was more to that story. There was a relationship between Dixon and I. I'd always been a very private person. And then suddenly, the truth came out. It's a wonderful Hollywood story about when you've once been idolized by millions of people, and then those millions don't show up anymore. I am big. It's the picture that got small. It's about three people's lives and the similarity with the original film. The whole background was really quite weird. All right, we are back and we're talking about Sunset Boulevard. And I hope you guys had a chance to see Boulevard, the story of the musical that never happened when... There was a musical that happened, but this was the one that didn't happen, which is just a bizarre story. 
I've heard about it in some of my research and it sounded like quite an interesting um, endeavor. It is fascinating. Luckily, uh, in that book I mentioned earlier about Close Up on Sunset Boulevard, he goes into a lot of that, but Schwartz really fills in a lot of gaps that are in that story and expands it even more to tell the whole story of after the movie was over, Swanson saying, you know, let's make a musical out of this and happening to find these two writers, these two songwriters that worked together. One was actually an actor who turned songwriter. The other one was just pure song and dance man. And just all of the things that happen with this story are amazing. And the one thing that Swanson wanted to do, which I found fascinating, we talked a little bit about how Norma Desmond had more money than God. And I liked that her interpretation, Swanson's own interpretation of Norma Desmond was maybe she shouldn't have been rich. Maybe she should have been in dire straits. Maybe she should have been hawking her jewelry in order to pretend that she has a lavish lifestyle and to fund this comeback. I hate that word. It's a return. A return to the millions of people who've never forgiven me for deserting the screen. To the big screen. And that that could be her secret and her trying to really make herself famous again and try to get back to that level of fame and fortune. I do feel like that's too proactive for her. I, I think she she lets things come to her before she will do something like I, I just can't imagine her going after her dream actively. Well, I mean, after our discussion here, I wouldn't want to change anything from the movie, but just thinking about part of her, like we mentioned, part of her power over Joe is her ability to provide, to be that benefactor, to be the, um, the, the sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, essentially, yeah. Yes. But, but to be the person who, under the guise of, I'll pay you to uh, work on my screenplay when it's. I'm terribly lonely and need a, a young man. <laughs> my, my, my chimp's gone. I need somebody else. I like that idea also because she never does end up giving him any money other than that, you know, the money from the gin, the money from or rummy or whatever it is that she's playing. And then the money for the cigarettes. Otherwise, like, yes, there's she the buys them a lot of stuff. There's definitely a lot of that, but there's not. She spends a lot of money. Yes. Along a similar vein, completely going outside, something similar to that happened to all of the girls who stayed at the Playboy Mansion. They were not supported. They had no money. They did everything on their own. They were given an allowance once a week after uh, some performances, let's say. And um, it's definitely the same sort of relationship. Sad to see in reality. Yeah, it's keeping somebody under your thumb by actually just taking that the the money, taking the purse strings. I mean, that's the whole like sexual exploitation of people and just financial abuse. Yeah, sure, we'll pay you five hundred dollars a week, but here's your room, here's your board. You know, oh, you uh, went for a ride in the car. Here's gas money. Here's this. Here's that. Okay, here's the two dollars that we owe you. That's literally sinking your hooks into them. It's like. Feeling like you have the lavish lifestyle while literally not having any of it on your own. And then I haven't had a chance to ever see the actual Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that came out. My wife saw it. I saw it in Toronto with Diane Carroll as the Norma Desmond character. 
And from what I understand, it's basically the movie, but with songs. So it's not necessarily a retelling, a different telling of it. I hung out with the theater crowd, big surprise, in high school. <laughs> and uh, so, so I I found out very quickly, I know most of the songs in it, but I've never seen it. <laughs> um, and it truly is uh, taken line for line at times, just the dialogue from the movie. Well, the movie's already an hour and 47 minutes long. So how are you going to, are you pump, bumping that up to like 220 or something or? Oh, yeah, you just, you know, add songs that are about three or four minutes apiece, so it really bulks it up. Yeah, and I guess you got an intermission in there as well, so. Oh, going back to comeback, just for a second. Um, She says comeback is a bad word, and that return is, and I think that is wonderful. Comeback is, like, the audience is accepting her again. They are, They see how wonderful she is, and they are allowing her back in. A return is... She decided to pull back from Hollywood, and now she's decided to come back, but not come. It's a great distinction, and I love that she makes it. I'm glad that she's so forceful about it. She is a very, very strong woman, but to our point from earlier, Betty Schaefer is a very, very strong woman as well. She doesn't take any shit from anybody. Even when Artie's kind of talking out a turn, she just tells him flat out, shut up, Artie. Just like, yeah, you go, girl. No, I thought she was phenomenal. And and he did like, and that was the thing. Artie didn't really like she wasn't into him actually. Joe, just because of his self-loathing, felt like he didn't deserve her. So does anybody else think that Betty's infatuation with Joe was more connected to the fact that they were collaborating? The way that some actors form false relationships when they're on set together. I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if once they finish that project, if she would still be that into him, if they would continue be being writing partners, partners in life. I'm not exactly sure. And I liked his little thing warning her about if I come any closer, you know, please push like me whack away. Me with your shoe or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was just yeah. like, okay, good. But she was kind of awakening something in him going like, hey, like, I remember what it was like to be young and idealistic. And she's like, I'm a woman. I've, I've got my foot in the door. But if I because she is helping him, I don't think it's like a purely exploitative thing. But she just sees an opportunity going, hey, if we get together, you can really help me, like, actualize my dreams. And and who's to say that, like, she she wouldn't be successful and kind of reignite the fire in him. And who knows, maybe they maybe they do have a happy ending. Their relationship is a healthier version of her, his relationship with Norma. Um, they're both using each other to ends. But for Norma, it's a destructive. And for Betty, they are literally making something. I mean, with Norma, there's the one scene that he has taken out of the manuscript that he just feels isn't very good at all. And then with Betty, she finds the eight pages or whatever it is in the old Dark Waters or Dark Window script and says, this this little bit here is worth saving. Everything else is garbage. One of the truest things I've ever seen. I, I did uh, some editing work for a while, and it's true. You, you do cut like three pages for every few lines. And you hear so many Hollywood stories, classic and modern, of that's sometimes the origin of your favorite movie where 
it started off as a side idea, this other project and that other project was kind of a non-starter, but like, well, this was a good idea. And then it turns into this wildly successful thing. You never know where good ideas are going to come from. Even with Sunset Boulevard, I think they had the idea of aging starlet and that was it. They found the Norma Desmond character and they didn't know what to do with her. And it was a matter of like trying to shape a story around her. And that story just kept changing. And Swanson brought a lot to it as well. She really helped shape that character. So no wonder she can be confused with Norma so often because she just embodies that role so much. And then it kind of became a little bit of a curse for her because people just wanted another Norma Desmond. They didn't realize that Gloria Swanson is Gloria Swanson and never the twain shall meet. That really is a shame that typecasting, of course it happens now, but yeah, what a, what a shame. I wish we could have gotten Hollywood to understand that actors are actors. There's a reason why they are actors. They can pretend to be different people in different circumstances. Uh, typecasting an actor, just nobody benefits from that. Even if you're being purely capitalistic, like you give the people good things, what they want, you, you can have more. But it's such a weird thing. Talking with that agent, he's like, yeah, I... Uh, I passed on Gone with the Wind. I thought, who wants to see a Civil War picture? Like, even kind of digging at the studios, like, they don't know. Like, successes happen. I mean, Billy Wilder was going hard for the writer, but it's like, who knows? Like, there's so many factors in, like, what what makes a success. Like, you never know. I don't think we've mentioned the deleted scene with the, uh, oh, my gosh. So, there's a deleted scene in which we're in uh, the bar. I can't remember which one it was called, but all of the up-and-coming, really scrappy, trying to make it work in Hollywood, all of these young... Yeah, all of these young people are singing a song about how Paramount does not want them. And it's literally them calling out Paramount in this movie. I loved it. I, I understand why they cut it. It changed the pacing a little too much. But now I want a story where that is an appropriate scene, like completely different movie with that scene. And what was the Paramount Don't Want Me Blues, I think it was called? Yes, that's exactly was what that it was. Was that a bridge yes. too far or was that a pacing thing? I I think it would have interrupted the pacing okay. of the story. Because um, it was just it really happening at that point. It was great. Yeah. When it was the guys who end up being in there, who's at Livingston and Evans, they're the ones that are singing Buttons and Bows. It was from a Bob Hope movie, I think. So they're still in it. But yeah, that whole song just got excised. I thought you were talking when you said deleted scene was the original opening of the film. Oh, in the which morgue? Was just- <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. What a bad idea. I'm sure I'm, I'm really glad the test audiences oh, laughed. Thank God for those <laughs> test audiences. I mean, the first time I ever heard of it, I was like, well, that sounds kind of cool. But then it's a cool idea for like a hard boiled noir, but not this one. So strange. So strange to have just that. It sounds like it went on for a long time, too, that we're getting to meet all of these other characters that are in the morgue and stuff, too. It's like, yeah, just start in the pool. Just go from there, please. It was a a great cut to go right to the action. Yeah, that would have set a very different tone. Well, then you get the really cut down versions when you're talking about like the TV version or the radio version. I think the radio version's about 45 minutes and the TV version's about an hour. And this was on the. Um, it was about an hour, yeah. Yeah. And 
trying to remember. Um, it was on, uh, gosh, the guy that was, we talked about him in uh, Ride the Pink Horse. He was uh, a really big deal. It was the Robert Montgomery TV show, and he did a version of uh, Sunset Boulevard on there with uh, my boy, Darren McGavin, Kolchak, uh, playing Joe Gillis, and then Mary Astor from The Maltese Falcon playing Norma Desmond. Maybe Astor started in the silence, but she was definitely very early Hollywood. So I thought it was kind of inspired casting to have that, but I'm sorry. She's just, she's not, she's not uh, Gloria Swanson. So not at all. She didn't play it broad enough. No, no. Yeah. She needed to, I mean, that role is, like I said, it's camp. It goes all the way up, all the way past 11. (laughs) Yeah. Way, you know, like the the mercury in the in the thermometer is just exploding out the top. Still so controlled, and I think we said like I think that silent movie training just was like the alk. All the the perfect things that came together are pretty much like um, irreplaceable. Like you you can't recreate that. So part of me goes, oh, it'd be interesting to see this story told in different ways. And it's like no, like. New original stories. We don't need remakes and reboots of everything. The TV show, which I did see, the cuts they had to make to put it into an hour-long show took away from the movie in pretty much every way. If this had been my first experience with Sunset Boulevard, I never would have bothered to see it in like the full movie. They took out parts that made the characters seem like they had made some kind of decision in between the scenes it became a little confusing with the story. I adore adaptations because I mean, within every adaptation, there's an um, uh, there's an opportunity to focus on something new, see something new, do something new. This did not do anything new; it just took away. And to your point from from way earlier, this did help kick off the whole hag exploitation type thing. It sure did. That was another thing that I really appreciated from that close up on Sunset Boulevard book was he really goes deep on a lot of the films that either directly or indirectly pull from Sunset Boulevard and of course, like Robert Aldrich just kind of made a little bit of uh, a career out of that, especially with uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane. That and I already mentioned Mommy Dearest, like that level of psychotic female acting would not have been possible without Norma Desmond. There's also, I believe, cousins of Jacqueline Bouvier uh, called Grey Garden's documentary. Still haven't seen that yet. (laughs) It's, oh man, it's incredible. And the movie is pretty good too. It's almost like they'd taken Norma Desmond and made her into two different people because they are just that they were just that detached from reality. And they were so focused on a time when they were young, you know, I mean, being young is fine and getting older and feeling young, that's fine. But there's some sort of way they were behaving that they're they're dangerous, basically. I don't know if you're a drag race fan, but Jinx Monsoon. Love her. Oh my god. When Love she her so much. when she did uh little Edie. Yep. <laughs> oh my god. It was just like, yeah, you every time the whole season on, switched from then on out. Every time she's on a snatch game, I'm right there for it. Oh my god, her Judy Garland was fucking fantastic. <laughs> oh boy. She's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, she's wonderful. If one were to have a favorite. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and we're gonna play a preview for next week's show. 
May I take a look? All my own rare editions have the same protagonist, the devil. Only the supreme masterpiece was missing. The Nine Gates is a kingdom of shadows, a book reputed to have been written by Satan himself. I want you to go to Europe. I want you to get it for me. You mean the devil won't show up? Reputed to conjure up the Prince of Darkness in person. Some books are dangerous. You don't know what you're getting yourself into, Mr. Corso. Get out before it's too late. I'm afraid it already is. At last the key will unlock the Night's Gate. You travel in silence to brave the arrows of misfortune and fear neither noose nor fire. There have been men who have been burned alive for just a glimpse of what you are about to witness. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at Roman Polanski's Ninth Gate. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Agatha and Philip. So, Agatha, what is the latest with you, ma'am? I podcast with my husband, Tim, at cinemaspection.com. We have a couple of things coming up. Uh, commentary tracks on The Phantom of Paradise and Night of the Living Dead. And in my personal life, I'm an artist, and I have a collection of horror art at the moment you can probably find me on uh twitter and see some of them it's at hagatha luz i have watched your pieces come together on facebook and twitter and so cool it is so great seeing the process and then seeing the final product wow so good thank you yeah and Philip, how about yourself? Uh, well, I podcast over at The Substance. We're uh, currently a bi-weekly show. We switched over to that. Um, we do films about every three or four episodes or so. We've had Mike on in the past to cover The Thing. We cover genre films. We cover um, popular films. We, co- we cover a stri- like explicitly faith-based stuff like Terrence Malick. Um, but we cover films of substance and other topics like that. So if you're interested in that, you can look us up at the substance pod on the socials. And one of these days, hopefully you can see me, hear me somewhere. I'm trying to get some voiceover work. So (laughs) hopefully you'll be hearing my voice uh, in some places. Well, thank you so much folks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like the shabby detective dreams for sale, ranking on bass podcast of power. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth get their close up. Well, then will you promise to work? Yes, I'll work. But Max, tell me first about the first day of the studio. <laughs> All right, now. I can tell you how it will be. You'll arrive quite early that day, and when the gate man smiles, you will wave in the same old way. All the makeup men will agree that you're even more beautiful now, and it all will seem like you've never been away. And then, as always, you'll hear me say, lights. Camera! Action!
like at the premiere? <laughs> All right. I can tell you how it will be. There'll be spotlights fanning the sky and the policemen parting the crowds so you can get by. And they all will cheer when they see that it's you and they'll lift you up high on a wave of shouts that will never seem to die. You'll make your entrance. You'll hear them cry. It's her, Norma. Norma Desmond! And then when it started and I come in view Episode of the Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at the Projection Booth Podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang. <laughs> <laughs>